Okay. So now we'll do a little meditation. And the most important thing about meditation is to start off on the right foot. And the right foot is a foot of comfort. So make yourself comfortable. You want to sit in a way that feels fairly natural, fairly comfortable, and fairly alert. So, of course, the classic way is the way that you see the Buddha Rupa sitting up there with his legs crossed. There's the the legs crossed in uh, uh, full lotus position. There's half lotus position. There's legs one in front of each other, which is called the Burmese position, uh, or the, the easy position. Um, there's the way I'm sitting right now with one leg cocked back in order to uh, accommodate a, a problem with my hip. There's sitting on a chair. There's even lying down. Uh, any posture is okay if you can maintain alertness and you have some modicum of comfort. Right? The idea is that you want to have a posture that you can hold still in for however long you're going to meditate. We'll meditate for maybe uh, 35 minutes or so. Something like that. So make yourself comfortable and upright. Richard, for the sake of Feng Shui, could you close that door for me? And we don't have to listen to the refrigerator. All right, very good. So make yourself comfortable, upright. And whenever you start a period of meditation, it's good to remind yourself what you're doing and why you're doing it. So the reason we meditate is it's part of the system of mind training. Ordinarily, our minds fly all around. Uh, They're they're constantly being bombarded by sense contacts. The mind reacts to sense contacts. And uh, our thoughts are part of our sense contacts. And so we react to our thoughts. So the mind is stimulated by sights, sounds, tactile sensations, odors, tastes. Uh, I must have left one out there. And the, uh, the mind itself. So, so thinking is another sense door. And what we're trying to do is get the mind to be able to develop the skill of attending to a very simple object and sticking with it without being distracted. So we're trying to achieve a state of undistractedness, sometimes called a state of collectedness or a state of composure, where the mind is composed at ease still. Uh, This is called samadhi. Sometimes it's translated as concentration, which maybe sounds kind of intense. Uh, Concentration is maybe not the best uh, translation of that word. I like the word composure. So we're trying to get ourselves to be kind of composed and still and collected with the mind stable and staying in one place. So we sit in a quiet place with relatively few distractions. And when we train the mind to do this, as we succeed in it, we find that it's actually quite nice. But at first we might have to struggle with the mind's tendency to fly around. So we have to be very patient and systematic about the way that we approach it without expecting any kind of quick results. So if we have the right attitude and we stick with it, sooner or later, 
will encounter uh, experiences of the mind being able to come into a collected and composed state. And that state is usually experienced as being quite nice. There's something kind of pleasant, nice, not sensual about it, but but uh, something that about it which is quite likable. And this is called, uh, there's a word for this, piti, which gets translated as rapture, bliss, which also is kind of a strong, overpowering word for what can be a very gentle, kind of a soothing touch of uh, on the mind of, oh, this is nice, I like this, I could stay with this for a while. So that's the, the sense of, of meditation when it's coming together. Is it's just a kind of a sense of real okayness, a non-restlessness, a non-disturbance, and a, a, a sense of like everything's fine. I like it. So um, as you're meditating, try to tune into the sense of like things are actually okay. There's nothing that you have to do, nothing to worry about uh, in this moment right now. Now, if you let your mind go to the future, or you let your mind go to the past, it will surely find something to worry about. So, so part of the training is just to stay right here, right now. So in this room, with the body the way it is, and the dove outside the window, and the very soft rain, it's not so bad. It's actually okay. So we can kind of let our guard down a little bit and relax. And just notice everything that's left when the mind is just here, just now. A little bit of sound. Maybe a little bit of visual contact. If you have your eyes closed, very little visual contact. And maybe a tiny bit of taste and smell. But with your eyes closed, what's mostly left is three things. Sound, tactile sensations of the body and thinking. So that's about half the problem right there. Just by sitting down quietly, closing our eyes, things get much more meditative. So as far as sound goes, we withdraw our attention from sound particularly. And we direct our attention towards the body, the tactile sensations. So feel your body, the whole thing. Feel the weight of the body on the seat. Sense the outline of your body where it touches clothing, where air is touching it. Feel your limbs. 
Move your attention around inside your body. Feel everything that's there. So if you feel your head, feel the face, feel the scalp, notice any sensations in the head. You can categorize sensations as being pressures, vibrations or emotions, temperatures, warmth and coolness. sense of solidity, weight, hardness, and softness. It's very elemental. And then look at your neck and shoulders and notice the same sorts of sensations are there. And while you're looking, If you notice that there's muscular tension, try to relax it. Just see if you can let it go. Any unnecessary muscular tension. Now feel your arms and your hands. Feel their weight, the pull in the shoulders, where they touch the body, or anything else. All the sensations that make up your impression of the arms and hands. (coughs) If your eyes are closed and you can't really see your arms and hands, The only information that you actually have about them is what you're feeling, the tactile sensations that make them up. (coughs) So examine these sensations. Now move the attention to your torso. middle of the body, everything that's happening there, especially again muscular tension to let it go. Notice where things are touching, maybe the chair is touching you, your clothing is touching, arms are touching. Notice any temperatures, coolnesses or or warmths that you can detect. (coughs) Now take up the legs and the pelvis, the lower half of the body. Do a sweep, start at the top and work your way down. 
like a farmer looking at his fields, doing an inspection. Just see what's there. take a step back and again look at the whole body all at once. There's a field of sensations. That's what's actually happening. Notice that the sensations are unstable. They shift and they move and they vibrate. They wax and they wane. Some of them can be kind of hard to pin down. A sensation that you can't quite label or say what it is. Something. There's no need to find a final answer. The important principle is simply to be able to observe. As you observe the body, notice that one of the things that's happening, that's coming and going, is the breath. The body breathes. Notice the sensations where the air comes in at the nose, lip, mouth area. Notice how the sensations shift. And waver and change. As the breath goes through its cycle of in and out. Now direct your attention to the sensations of breathing in the torso. Again, there's sensations in response to the cycle of breath. The abdomen might rise and fall. The chest might very subtly expand and contract. Maybe you can even feel your shoulders and arms moving just a tiny little bit. But whatever you feel in response to the cycle of breath, just think of that as the breath, these sensations. It's not a concept. It's an experience.
as you experience the breath directly, your mind will automatically tend to overlay the sensations with concepts. Things like rising and falling, in and out, air, lungs, flow, etc. And those are okay, you don't have to do anything about them. But the concepts are not really the point. Just direct your attention towards the sensations. This is a subtle object. It's not very interesting. It's not exciting. It's not rewarding, particularly. It's kind of boring. Especially when you first get started with it. Especially when you stick with it for a while. So the mind is likely to lose interest and wander away. And this is normal. No need to be upset if that happens. Because this is a training exercise, you simply include that as part of the training. <coughs> We're training the mind to be able to develop the power to stay with a subtle object. There's a really good reason why we're doing this. <coughs> I'll talk about that more later, but for now. <coughs> this is a capacity of the mind, and it's one that can be trained. And so we train it, because it's going to help us. Learning to meditate is a little bit like learning a, oh, a new language or a branch of mathematics or something. At first it's hard and then it gets easier over time. So this is the exercise. Select some field of sensations that involve the breath. The classics are to select the area where the breath comes in and out of the body, around the nose, the nostrils, the lip, the mouth, wherever you notice the sensations of coming and going. Or to select the abdomen and feel the rise and fall of the abdomen as you're breathing. The sensations there just come and go all by themselves. And your job is simply to witness them, to watch them come and go, and to keep your attention directed in that direction as they come and go. This is your anchor. Other things will happen. You'll hear sounds. Your body will generate sensations. 
your mind will generate the thoughts. And all that's okay, that's normal. When you notice sounds, simply notice that there's sound. And then redirect the attention back towards the breath. When you notice there's thinking, just acknowledge, oh, the mind is thinking. It's thinking about this, thinking, thinking, thinking. Try not to get engaged in the content. Just recognize that it's a thought. And let it go. You don't have to fight thinking. Mostly you just have to wait it out or not engage it. Just stand back and keep reminding yourself of what it is that you're witnessing. You're witnessing the mind thinking. And that's all. Like watching a movie or listening to a voice on the radio. And as soon as you take that attitude towards thinking, nine times out of ten it loses its power and the mind goes silent. It can really only think if you're not paying attention. As soon as you pay attention to thinking, it clams up, it goes quiet. Like a magic trick. This is actually the nature of thinking, is to come and go, to arise and pass away, just like the sounds of nature. As soon as the mind goes quiet, then direct attention back to the breath to use as your anchor. At the other extreme of activity, the mind will get bored and start to fall asleep. And again, this is natural and normal. We associate having the eyes closed and being relaxed with sleep. We've been doing it for a long time. So you're training the mind to be able to stay awake with the eyes closed, the body relaxed, and attention directed at something simple. As you develop this ability, you realize that it's, it's actually quite special. It's an unusual state of mind. Most people don't get to experience it. a mind that's not busy, a body that's relaxed, with the eyes closed and at peace, contented. It's refreshing. It's nice. And it's quite available as you develop this ability. So this exercise will make the mind more capable, like any other form of training. You develop access to a new kind of mental state, 
attentive, alert, relaxed, collected. But meditation needs an object. It needs a theme. The mind has to have something to hold on to. So we use the breath. That's our main anchor. Anything that comes along, we try to set it aside. If the mind starts to fall asleep, try to notice that the mind is getting drowsy, energy is declining. And as soon as you notice that, take evasive action. Straighten up your posture if it's starting to slump. Take a deeper breath to add more oxygen to your body. Notice the sensations of the deeper breath. And see if that changes the dynamic and allows you to maintain wakefulness. Ask yourself the question, am I sinking or is the mind buoyant? If the mind is still sinking, still heading towards sleep, then the next step in evasive action is to simply open your eyes and gaze softly at whatever's in front of you without engaging in that content. The extra light can be enough to wake the mind up. These are the two forces that will pull on the mind. One towards restlessness and thinking. The other towards sleep and zoning out, blanking out. You're trying to find the balance between these two. Alert, relaxed, collected, composed, aware, attentive, peaceful. Try to feel that in your meditation. Feel those components. Let those qualities inform the way that you hold your object. You don't need to grit your teeth or try really hard. You just persist with the intention and keep returning again and again. Whenever the mind drifts away, just bring it back over and over. Sooner or later, you'll find at least periods of time when it's easy, the mind's happy to stay with the object. And you start to see more detail. You start to notice more nuances of sensation. And this is a sign of developing concentration, increasing composure. But again, you have to be patient and let that develop naturally.
So wherever your attention is right now, see if you can bring it back to the breath. Witness the breath as it goes in. Witness the breath as it goes out. Be on hand for the pause in between breaths. Try to be there when the new breath starts. Every breath has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Try to notice the beginnings of breaths so they don't start without you being there. And if you miss some, don't worry, just keep gently inclining the mind in that direction. The more details that you can see in the breath, the easier the breath is to stay with because it becomes more interesting. And this is the direction of developing the power of concentration. So now I'll stop talking. And we'll continue with this exercise for a while longer. The breath is the anchor. Other things will come along. Notice them and let them go. Come back to the breath. This moment is perfectly peaceful, perfectly ordinary, perfectly okay. We can stay here and develop this power of mind. When the time is up, I'll ring a bell. Relax and enjoy.
believe it or not, that was 40 minutes. If you have a good meditation, time goes by like that. If you have a bad meditation, you're like, when's the bell going to ring? How much longer do we have to do this? So now's the time for the Dhamma talk. Um, this is a kind of informal Dhamma talk. So, uh, I'll keep it kind of brief, and then leave some time for Q&A. Questions and answers. Anybody who wants to ask a question. Um, so we just got done taking the five precepts, the three refuges and the five precepts. And uh, that's quite traditionally done on uh, opositas or uh, lunar observance days. Um, and it can be done pretty much any time people request it. So there was a request today. Is it Vina? You wanted to do it? Is your, your birthday's coming up. It's good to kind of set this, get off started on the right foot. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the monks and the lay people that are staying here at the monastery, we take the eight precepts every, uh, every fortnight. And uh, so we're, we're all living here under at least the eight precepts. The monks, of course, are living under uh, 227 precepts which we have to listen to every, every fortnight as well. And our, uh, our renunciate anagarikas are living under eight precepts. And when we have novices, they're living under 10 precepts. But the five precepts that you just hook are in no way inferior to those larger numbers. The larger numbers are all mer- merely elaborations, if you will, of those five precepts. They're the kind of the five principal qualities of someone who's taking the path seriously in terms of their conduct. Uh, you've, you've probably heard that the Buddha sometimes described the course of training as the Eightfold Noble Path. So the Eightfold Noble Path is the fourth of the Four Noble Truths. So it's good to kind of go back and see how this all fits together. The first Noble Truth the way the Buddha put it, is the noble truth of suffering. And what is the noble truth of suffering? Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Illness is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Separation from what is loved is suffering. Being joined with what is unloved is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. In brief, the five groups of clinging, that is, form, feeling, perception, mental formation, and consciousness, these five focuses of the clinging mind are suffering. So if you think about that first noble truth, and it's quite deep, actually. You know, it sounds like a laundry list, but really it's, it's uh, very carefully thought through. And it's broken into physical suffering, uh, emotional suffering, psychic suffering, and then summarized as these five groups, these five groups, these five, what's called, what are called the five aggregates, or the five khandas. Uh, those five things which make up our psychophysical cognitive phenomena they are the basis of our suffering. And it's not just that the five khandas themselves are somehow, they are suffering. 
But the Buddha says that the five aggregates subject to clinging are suffering. It's the clinging is the key word in there. So we'll, we might get into that a little bit more. But the point is, is that there's nothing in these, in your ordinary experience as a human being that isn't included in these five khandhas. So the five khandhas are, they're always presenting you with opportunities to suffer. And as uh, when we're not paying attention to what's going on, we we take many of those opportunities and we're blindsided by those opportunities because we don't really quite understand how things work. And that's where the second, the third, and the fourth noble truth come in. So the first noble truth is a statement of the problem. And these four noble truths are composed in the form of a, a ancient Indian physician's diagnosis of a disease and prognosis of its course and prescription of its cure. So the first noble truth is the diagnosis. Life as we ordinarily experience it is characterized by suffering. Suffering is kind of a heavy word. The word itself is dukkha. Dukkha is a word in Pali, which is the, the language that we've been using here, that the Buddha uh, used, or the, very, very near to the, to the dialect that the Buddha was using. Dukkha uh, comes from the root uh, difficult or hard. And the word is usually translated or has a, the, the implication of difficult to bear. Right? So um, waiting in traffic is difficult to bear. Uh, having to wake up and, and go to work in the morning is difficult to bear. Being thirsty is difficult to bear. Being diagnosed with cancer is difficult to bear. So it really covers a, a huge range of anything that we find less than completely satisfactory. It includes mental suffering, or mental unsatisfactoriness, and physical unsatisfactoriness, and our, our mental response to any kind of physical contact. So that which is difficult to bear is included under this umbrella of dukkha. Uh, and so another translation is unsatisfactoriness, which can seem too mild, right? Because if you're if you're dealing with chronic pain or you've you've just suffered through the death of a, of a loved one, um, calling it unsatisfactory seems kind of shallow, right? Um, but if like the uh, your your eggs are overcooked, calling it suffering seems kind of harsh, right? Okay. So so un, so dukkha is the word, but it covers this whole range of our reactions to things. That's the first noble truth. The second noble truth is the noble truth of the cause of dukkha. The cause of dukkha, the Buddha says, is clinging. Uh, and it's that clinging which um, is ever taking fresh delight, now here, now there, and leads to becoming. <coughs> And this clinging uh, is based on clinging to sense pleasures or clinging to sense contacts, uh, clinging to becoming or being, you could say, getting things, having things, to, having things come into being, and clinging to annihilation or getting rid of things, having things come to an end. So as long as the mind has an agenda of um, kind of sensually um, grasping at that which is pleasurable. Like, mmm, you know, this uh, uh, this delicious chocolate pudding is really good. You know? 
or um, oh look, there's a new episode of uh, my favorite television show is coming up. You know, I really want to see it. You know, um, or uh, <coughs> any type of becoming. Like uh, becoming can be very gross and it can be very subtle. Uh, so if we put a lot of effort into becoming um, our profession, so say you're, you're an architect or a doctor or an engineer or an interior <coughs> designer, and you want to be, you want people to recognize you. Like, you know, look, I'm a monk. You have to call me venerable, okay? Because otherwise, you're disrespecting me, right? Like that would be if I'm clinging to my identity as a monk then that's becoming, right? Or if I think, oh, this monk life, this is terrible. I, I can't take it anymore. I'm going to disrupt. That's clinging to annihilation, right? So anytime we're in a, in a position of wanting to get rid of something um, and, uh, in, in effect, making our happiness depend on that, uh, assuming that if we get that, if we can bring that condition about, that then we'll finally be happy, that's clinging. Um, so, uh, the clinging to becoming is the clinging to getting things to happen or come to us. So, wanting to be the owner of the new car, or wanting to have that relationship, wanting to get that apartment, wanting to have the raise of the promotion, wanting to get the title, wanting to um, be uh, acknowledged for that fantastic memo you wrote at work. Mm -hmm. you know, anything like that is a kind of clinging to becoming. And then uh, it's the inverse of wanting people not to know about this or not to, not to point this out to you or not to criticize you for that or to stop treating you this way or anything like that is a clinging to annihilation. So it's kind of a push and a pull. Those, are, those power a huge amount of what goes on in our, in our uh, experience of unsatisfactoriness because obviously if we're clinging to something and we haven't got it yet, we're not satisfied. Right? We're, we're, we think we're going to be satisfied when we get it or when we get rid of it, if we're trying to get rid of something. But it's, it's a state of being unsat, uh, unsatisfied because of that relationship of either pulling or pushing. But the first one, um, uh, clinging to sense pleasures, is in a way even more fundamental uh, and quite prominent in our experience. So every time um, you feel like, oh, I'm meditating and I'm not supposed to move, but my ankle really hurts, my knee really hurts and I really want to move, you know. That's obviously a state of unsatisfactoriness. So what, you're, what the mind is clinging to is the possibility of the pleasure of moving, right? And, or, or the pleasure of not having to hold still. Uh, um, and that's a very kind of subtle, it's almost like a kind of more like an escape from pain. Those two are related. They're actually both related to becoming and, and uh, annihilation too. So there's this kind of a binary quality or a black and white quality to our clinging. We either want something or we want to get rid of something. Those two stances are clinging. Sense pleasures, however, drives a lot of it um, because we learn shortly after we're born or maybe even before we're born that uh, we learn to equate uh, comfort and pleasure with good, like it, want more of it, and discomfort and displeasure and pain with bad, don't like it, want to get rid of it. And so um, when we're not really mindful, like say you're, you're watching TV and you're eating some potato chips, every potato chip's giving you a little tiny bit of pleasure. And if you don't pay attention, you'll eat the whole bag. 
and you won't really even enjoy it. You won't consciously enjoy it, but you're kind of part of the mind's kind of feeding on those little tiny hits of pleasure. And the little tiny hits of pleasure are, for the most part, kind of going underneath the radar of your full conscious awareness of what's actually happening. Uh, and the same thing goes for when you're trying to avoid pain. So most of the shifting around of our bodies when we're kind of uh, not paying very much attention, if you're sitting and you're reading and you're kind of, kind of adjusting your posture a little bit, it's because there's, there's pain in the body somewhere and we're not really aware of it. So, but your, your uh, part of your leg starts to fall asleep and you just kind of, you know, make a little adjustment so that that's, that pain goes away. So our, we're, we're programmed at a very, very deep level to, to avoid and try to escape pain of any sort, not just physical pain, but mental pain as well, and to pursue pleasure, not just physical pleasure, but mental pleasure as well. So um, paying attention to your, mental, to, your, to your meditation object takes effort, and it's, it's a very kind of subtle dis, displeasure in that and you haven't really found the groove of how great it is, and you're kind of like trying to get your mind to stay there, the mind can think of like, oh, but if I think about my vacation in Hawaii that's coming up, and how great it'll be, you know, I'm going to go snorkeling, and the mind can go off there and get little tiny bits of pleasure by thinking about stuff. That's why the mind does it. It's pursuing pleasure, right? Most of what our minds do is either a reaction to pleasure or a reaction to pain or anticipation of pleasure or pain. So it's related somehow to pleasure and pain. So those clingings and that, that uh, attitude towards pleasure and pain is like baked in the cake. It's part of our nature, right? We're, we're, we're born into it. We're not, we don't choose to be that way. That's just the way we are. And because it's the way that uh, the human uh, psyche operates, it ordinarily, ordinarily doesn't come up for examination. We don't go, huh, I, in my mind, I think that pleasure is happiness and displeasure is unhappiness. I think they're the same thing. I wonder if that's really true. We never kind of have that, that internal dialogue. Right? But what the Buddha is pointing out is that there's actually a subtle difference, but a very important difference, between pleasure and happiness. What we want is happiness. What we presume is that pleasure equals happiness. And so we go chasing after pleasure. Turns out, however, that it's possible to be very, very happy, completely uh, at ease and, and peaceful, contented, completely free of unsatisfied, as the state of being unsatisfied, no dissatisfaction in your mind at all. That by definition, the state of being satisfied is the happiness that we want. That's what we're chasing after, is satisfaction. So if your mind is satisfied, then you can say that you're happy. And so you finally got what you wanted. You don't need to chase anymore. You can just kind of relax and enjoy. Happiness is possible to experience even in the absence of pleasure. Pleasure does not equal happiness. But pleasure is like a, a, a quick and easy solution to the, to the problem of unhappiness. So if we're feeling some unhappiness, or we're feeling dissatisfied, or we're feeling restless, or we're feeling bored, we can just eat something. <laughs> and suddenly we have some pleasure, or we can drink something, or we can watch something, or we can entertain ourselves somehow. But suddenly we're getting some pleasure. And that's like enough to make it more bearable. 
So, uh, uh, I know, I hesitate to say all, but a very large percentage of the things that human beings do, that we all do, is driven by this underlying agenda of pursuing pleasure for the sake of happiness and avoiding pain for the sake of happiness under the um, not fully understood thinking or, or presumption that pleasure and happiness are the same thing because they're so closely related, they're so closely connected in our minds, and, in, and especially in our early experience. Now, when your mother's holding you in your arms and you're just you're kind of newly born into the world and she's comforting you and feeding you and you know petting you, like you're getting a lot of pleasure out of that, and she's kind of introducing you to the world of happiness, right? So, so pleasure and happiness are really conjoined in our minds when we're before we even have words for it, right? It's a it's a visceral feeling. It's a deep in our bodies, you could say. It's only later when we learn about things like mental pain, right? So, someone calls us a bad name. Before, when we're when, our, when we're in our mother's arms and we don't have language. People could call us anything they want, and we don't really care, right? We just, we just want our moms to be, to be there for us. But uh, later on, when we're, we're four and someone calls us, a, 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 you know, they make fun of our name or something like that, we get really enraged and we experience a lot of pain. And that goes on for the rest of our lives, right? We get all, most of our pain ends up being mental pain, not so much physical pain. But we, we still associate physical pleasure with happiness. So, so a lot of what drives people, I mean, that's the basis of a lot of the things that are wrong in the world, is people um, pursuing pleasure in the form of physical pleasure, pursuing happiness in the form of physical pleasure, not really understanding what's going on. In fact, you could say that's part of the reason that there's that fifth precept there about avoiding intoxicants that dull the mind. Because the reason people are drinking alcohol and smoking marijuana and taking other kinds of drugs for recreational purposes is for the pleasure that it gives them and also specifically to, to kind of like reduce the sense of unhappiness or unsatisfactoriness of being really awake and attuned to your, the circumstances of your life. If you can take the edge off, you can kind of dull down the, 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 the cutting aspects of your, of your lived experience, um, that's easier to bear. Right? So alcohol and, and, and other drugs are um, helping you not pay that much attention to, to the dissatisfactory aspects of your life. And of course, they go, they, they go directly counter to the Buddha's instructions of like, wake up, pay attention, see what's happening, and understand the truth. Right? So, so that, it's there for mul that fifth precept is there. It's kind of a controversial precept because it's not really a moral precept. It's like victimless crime, you know. Um, it's there for reasons other than uh, uh, strictly consideration of, of the welfare of others. The other ones you can kind of see there, they have something to do with, with society at large. But, you know, if you decide to, like, have some wine with, with dinner, you know, who's, who's it going to hurt? So people get into arguments with the fifth precept. Uh, but, they, but again, the precepts are, are connected very, very closely with the... the, the the Four Noble Truths. And we've been through the First Noble Truth, the truth of unsatisfactoriness, the Second Noble Truth, which is the cause of this unsatisfactoriness, which is clinging. And the clinging is based on a mistaken strategy for pursuing happiness, right? Mm -hmm. The mind wants to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. That's what minds do. They pursue happiness. They're, they're, like, they're like happiness-pursuing machines. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, and the Buddha certainly suggested it's really a good idea to become happy. Mm -hmm. But what he was 
also suggesting is, is to use the right strategy to arrive at a happiness that's not dependent on external conditions. Because you can see that anytime you're pursuing a happiness, it depends on you getting what you want or you not having to put up with what you don't want or getting to consume the thing that you want to consume. It's, it's really dependent on those external conditions. And external conditions really aren't under our control. Right? So if you, if you finally get that person in your life that you always wanted and they love you and you love them and you're, everything's so great, sooner or later you're going to be parted from that person. It's just how it is. Everything that has a beginning has an end. So the Buddha continues with this, this little uh, Four Noble Truths summary of the teaching. <clears throat> the second noble truth being the truth of the cause of suffering. The third noble truth is the truth of the end or the cessation of suffering. So, and this, is, this kind of gets to the very core of the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha's teaching is sometimes called the teaching on causality or causation. And in a couple of places he summarized it um, in a very almost abstract way. When this arises, that arises. Because of this, that comes up to be. When this fades away, that fades away. With the fading of this, that can no longer sustain itself and it fades too. This is the basic kind of mathematical description of causality. Something which is dependent and arises only because of conditions, when its conditions fade away, it too must fade away. So anything that you can identify with your mind, if it's a conditioned thing, like your happiness as you're eating <clears throat> chocolate pudding, as soon as your chocolate pudding ends, that satisfaction of eating chocolate pudding has to end too. It can't sustain itself without its, its necessary foundation. It's, it's pre precedent condition. So, this is the third noble truth. It's the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. When one abandons the clinging, when one is freed from that clinging to becoming, to annihilation, and to sensual pleasure, if one can abandon that, then the suffering that comes from it just goes away. Just like that. No further effort required. The trick, though, is getting to the point where you can abandon it. Right? Because um, clinging, as the word, the word suggests, there's something in your mind which is kind of like holding on. It's got a grip on it and it doesn't want to let go. And for the most part, we don't recognize that's happening. We don't see it. We don't, we don't perceive it. We just want, we, like there's chocolate pudding, we know chocolate pudding is good and we want to eat it, or there's this person that we love, or this television show we like to watch, or whatever, right? The things that we're constantly trying to get or not have to put up with. You know, the neighbor's dog is barking again and it drives me crazy. So we can, we can make ourselves suffer over all kinds of different conditions that we don't like or that we want, that we don't have. And it's not the external conditions that's causing this problem. It's the mind's relationship to those conditions. It's a, it's a relationship of grabbing onto, uh, grabbing onto the, to, to the thing that we want that we haven't yet got, or grabbing onto the possibility of getting rid of the thing that we don't want. So it's this kind of inner, inner mental gripping, grasping, clinging, holding onto. This brings us to why we practice. When we practice um, our practices, like when we're practicing meditation, we're paying attention to how the mind operates. 
when we start to see that when we put the mind in this kind of subtle, neutral, not particularly threatening or problematic object of the breath, in about a minute or so, the mind's like, screw this, I'm going to go think about something, right? It, it doesn't really want to stay there. It's not content. And, the, and so we get a taste of the discontent that's driving the mind all the time. We might not recognize it the first time that it happens, but if we st stick with the exercise, sooner or later, you'll be there and you'll, your, your, your awareness and your ability to follow subtle objects and your ability to pick up details will develop to the point where you can actually see your mind generate unhappiness or generate um, wanting. And you'll go, oh, look at that. There's, there's that thing they're talking about all the time, clinging. Right? The mind's, mind's like not wanting this. It's, there's a certain kind of aversion. What's behind that? And you, start, you take a look and you see it's just this kind of very subtle intentionality or almost like a belief that's unfounded. It's a, it's a volitional act to cling. You kind of get a glimpse of the volition that's behind the clinging. And you go, hmm, well, there's no point. There's no point to that. I can just drop it. And right there, you feel the cessation of suffering. Not forever, but for that particular instance. Right? So you get, you get direct experiential uh, you get it, you get your own experience of what the third noble truth means by practicing. Say someone that you that you dislike is coming into your office or coming into your personal space, and you feel aversion coming up, and you've been practicing very carefully. Right? If your practice is strong, at some point something that's happening in your space which would normally trigger aversion, you're going to go, oh look. Contact is happening, association comes up, aversion is connected with that association, and volition is feeding that aversion. That's painful. And it's stupid. <laughs> I don't want to do that anymore. I'm letting it go. Then because the volition is gone, the aversion goes. Because the aversion goes, the unsatisfactoriness goes, and the displeasure goes. And so then this person just becomes a person and not the object of your ire. And you don't have to suffer in their presence anymore, at least this time. But it's only because you're paying attention, because you sharpened your, your ability to notice things. So that's why we're practicing. We're, we're, we're trying to, to make our minds more capable of catching these subtle little uh, glitches that happen in the mind. Which brings us to the third or fourth noble truth. So the first noble truth is the truth of unsatisfactoriness, which is driving everything that we do. The second noble truth is the truth of the cause of unsatisfactoriness, which is the clinging that's happening in the mind, which has a volitional basis. Right? We're, whether we're, we're usually not aware of it, but we're actually choosing to cling. Um, our mind's able to perfectly capable of operating with automatic pilot. If you've ever you know, learned a physical skill like driving, and you got in the car to drive somewhere, and you like yak the entire time that you're driving there, and then you're, you've arrived at your destination, you're not really sure what happened. It's because the mind's so capable of doing all kinds of volitional acts without really having it be operated at the conscious level. So volition, most of our volition actually operates below our level of awareness. 
So by, by improving our, our mindfulness and our concentration, we start to bring all these subtle volitions back up into consciousness again, where we can re-examine whether or not they're a good idea. Right? And then the ones that we see are kind of pointless or useless or outlive their usefulness or are actually counterproductive, we can start making fresh choices about whether or not we want those volitions to continue or not. And we can start dropping the ones that are unhelpful. And that's the direction of freedom. How do you do that? Well, that brings us to the fourth noble truth. This is the noble truth of the Eightfold Noble Path. It's the way leading to the cessation of suffering. And the Eightfold Noble Path is summarized as right view, which is the view that there is causality, that nothing happens all by itself. Right intention, which is the intention of non-cruelty and non-harmfulness. Right speech, you all know what right speech is. It's the opposite of wrong speech. Mm -hmm. uh, right action, which basically means the actions of harmlessness and uh, taking into consideration the needs of others. Right livelihood, which is to be making your living in the world in a way that uh, uh, has integrity and is in line with right speech and right action. And then the last three, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Those are the three that we just got done practicing as we were meditating. Right? Putting forth effort, keeping our mind on the object and keep bringing it back over and over again and trying to, trying to maintain awareness of what the mind is doing. That's right mindfulness. And then as the mind gathers and gets more focused, this is right concentration coming to be. Right? So we, we, we're using every one of these aspects of the Eightfold Noble Path to train ourselves to stop making things worse, which is what the, all the ethical ones are about, to, to, to frame our experience correctly so that we're interpreting our event, the events correctly. We're no longer blaming the world for our unhappiness. We're recognizing that our unhappiness is coming from our own internal stance, our own mental attitudes regarding the world. And then uh, abandoning the habits of unskillfulness that, make, that, that perpetuate suffering over time. Um, and then attuning our minds to the very subtle internal volitions that are abandonable, which constitute the clinging that causes suffering. So the five precepts are part of this in the sense that we're uh, formally and intentionally choosing to take on these training principles of not taking the life of any living creature, which is part of right action, uh, not taking what is not given, also part of right action, uh, refraining from har false and harmful speech, it's basically that's right speech, uh, refraining from sexual misconduct, also part of right action, and then finally, refraining from intoxicating drugs, which lead to carelessness, which are fundamentally uh, tied to almost all the other aspects of the path. Because drink and drugs, which lead to carelessness, you could say they're pointing in a certain direction. Like say they're pointing that way, right? What the Buddha's teaching is pointing in the exact opposite direction, right? So by taking, the, by taking this precept, the fifth precept seriously, you're basically aligning your mind with the teachings of the Buddha and you're abandoning the teachings of being asleep and not knowing what's going on, which is called ignorance or delusion. It's the ignorance and delusion of how things actually work that keeps us bound to the cycle of suffering. When we finally break through the cycle of suffering, it's only because 
we woke up. We paid attention carefully enough, thoroughly enough, long enough, repeatedly enough, habitually enough to see how this works, how the mind creates suffering, and how it's possible to abandon it. And when we see the possibility of abandoning it, we just do. I mean, we abandon suffering and the causes of suffering when we see them the way you would abandon holding on to a hot coal that's burning your hand. You would just let it go like that. No one has to talk you into it. You don't do it you're not doing it as a virtuous act. You're doing it out of, out of intelligent self-regard. You're like, this is stupid. I'm not doing that anymore. And you just let it go. But you can't do that until you see it. And you have to see it directly in your own direct experience as your mind is doing it in real time. That's why we train the mind. So I'll leave that for your consideration. Mm -hmm. So there's a few extra minutes left. Anybody who would like to, you can pose a question or two. We'll see if anything comes out of it. Yes, Ina. Um, I get the idea about training uh, your pleasure. And one of the precepts uh, is about not taking life. Mm -hmm. And, life, and that life is sacred and precious. And well, the precepts, you have to be careful. The precept's not saying that life is precious and sacred. That's a reasonable conclusion to draw. But, but when the, in the teachings, it's always really important to pay attention to the actual wording that's used. So, for example, there's a teaching on, the Buddha calls it the teaching on not self-characteristic. You've probably heard of that, anatta. The teaching on the not-self-characteristic is pointing to the fact that um, the five aggregates are not-self. Right? Later commentators have come to, come to interpret that, sort of summarize it by saying, there is no self. The Buddha never says that. In fact, sometimes he says, we all experience a self. You know? I'm, I'm not saying there is not no self. Right? But other commentators have, have like put their own interpretation on what the Buddha is teaching. So that's why I'm kind of interjecting here. Thank you. Thank you. My question really is, where do you draw the line about uh, pulling back from pain? If oh, pain okay. Pain is, you know... Uh, pain's not fun. Yeah. yeah. Or pain's not fun, that's okay, but if the pain is so bad that it... And, uh, and it highlights your own self. Mm -hmm. Well... Physically or... Uh, do you have a particular example in mind, or...? No, um, if you're in a difficult situation where you're you know, with this negativity, anger, and, oh, okay. and it comes to you, mm -hmm. even no matter how much you practice, where, where do you draw? Your natural reaction is to move away. Yeah, well, the, the Buddha didn't say that you have to sit around enduring pain, right? Uh, there's, a, there's a funny, an interesting sutta, which is a little controversial. Um, there's, in the, the, suttas have, the suttas, of course, are the collection of the teachings of the Buddha. Here's, here's a book of suttas. Mm -hmm. right? I love this one. This is the Anguttara Nikaya. I like to read from this one. The suttas are typically uh, anywhere between a few sentences to several pages long. And the Buddha gives a teaching in most of the suttas. In one of the suttas, the Buddha is visited by a, uh, oh, let's call it a celestial being, right? called a yaka. And this is a, a yaka that has, that's like a kind of a, a, a demon or a ghoul or a goblin or a ghost or something like that. Uh, um, and he's, his body is covered with spines, like a porcupine. Right? And he sits down next to the Buddha. And the Buddha's sitting, minding his own business. The Yaka sits down next to him and leans into the Buddha. Right? 
And so like all his spines are now poking into the Buddha. What does the Buddha do? He leans away. And the Yaka goes, hey, ascetic, I thought you were an ascetic. Why are you leaning away? And the Buddha says, uh, your touch is painful. That's the end of the sutta. Right? He's, not giving any, he's not giving a justification. He's not making any excuses. He's just saying that it's a natural thing to try to lean away from pain. Right? You don't have to lean into it. But the Buddha is also pointing out that pain is inevitable. Like some, somewhere along the line, you're going to experience pain that you cannot get away from. What do you do then? Right? So um, meditation is a, good, is a good way of seeing how the mind reacts to pain. If you sit and you, and you make the determination to like sit still, uh, the longer you sit, the more, it is, more likely it is that some uh, discomfort is going to come up in your body. It'll, your leg will fall asleep or you know, you'll start to feel like, your ankles burning or your feet are burning or something will be very painful. And it, as your meditation gets stronger, You'll, you, can get to a, you can arrive at a place where no amount of physical pain is enough to make you decide to move. You can simply sit there and observe physical pain and go, yep, it's physical pain, all right, sure enough, I recognize it. It's, it's like this. Right? And you can simply be present with physical pain without being uh, disturbed by it. The mind doesn't have to be disturbed by the sensations of pain. The same thing is true for mental pain. You can have great waves of like grief and sadness coming up, and the mind can simply be very unmoved by it, unshaken by it. But you don't you don't force yourself to you can't make you can't, it's not like an act of will that gets you there. It's the same process. You have to see for yourself how it is that the mind takes these natural occurrences of physical pain and mental pain and makes a problem out of them. Until you can see how the mind makes a problem out of them, you simply have to bear with the fact that it's a problem right now. Right? So if your knee pain is a problem right now, because you haven't actually arrived at the place where you can you know, abide with equanimity, that's okay. You know, you're, there's no, there's no like, moral failing involved in deciding to move to relieve that pain. Right? Same thing goes for mental pain. If so, there's some mental pain that's coming up because someone's, you know, like okay, uh, uh, someone's reviling you, insulting you, treating you badly. You don't have to maintain a relationship with that person. Right? You don't have to sort of put up with it if it's possible for you to escape. It's okay to try to escape. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, the The reason that we train ourselves is not so much so that we can become really good at putting up with abuse. We're training ourselves so that when pain comes to us that we cannot avoid, someone we love dies or we get sick, we get you know, a diagnosis of cancer or something like that. We can't avoid the mental and the physical pain that's gonna go along with that. How does our mind react? The mind will react the way it's been trained. Right? So what you do is you, you use your practice to train your mind and you're constantly sort of testing it and, and having your, your actual life show you what your, what your level of training is. And then you use that as feedback to guide your the way that you direct yourself so that over time uh, you're, you're, you become more and more capable of abandoning the causes of suffering. And as practice proceeds, eventually you see, oh, it's possible to do it. Like it's possible to arrive at a place where you go, hmm, just like in meditation, there's no physical pain that can intimidate me. 
I don't see any emotional pain that can intimidate me. I don't see any, any psychic or mental pain that can intimidate me. This is like freedom. Like you, like you no longer have to be afraid of anything at that point. You're not going out looking for trouble, maybe. Uh, the, uh, there's lots of stories in Zen about Zen masters going out and looking for ways to test themselves. You know, like yeah, um, go out during the winter, or break through the ice of the pond, and go swimming. You know, in order to sort of prove to themselves that they really are the masters of pain. But you don't have to do that, right? Uh, uh, um, and the, so, the, so the the precepts are um, notice that the way that we they're worded is for the for, uh, I undertake for the sake of training I undertake this precept. The precept is something that you undertake is like a uh, an ambition, right? It's not something that that's a black and white, hard and fast iron rule that you have to obey, right? The reason that you undertake something like this, like say you say the precept against killing. So you've, you've undertaken the precepts again, taking life of any living creature, and then five minutes later, a mosquito starts biting on you, and you, now it's a dead mosquito, right? So the reason that happens is because you're not paying attention. And when you do that, you're like, oh, I just broke the precept, right? Um, it doesn't mean that you're going to hell. It doesn't mean that you did anything wrong, right? If you hadn't taken the precept, if you, if you never took that precept, and the mosquito came along, you just... And you wouldn't think you wouldn't think a second thought about it, right? But because you took the precept, your mind goes, oh, "I just I just broke my precept." Yeah. That's the training effect of the precepts, right? The precepts are there to give you a guideline to notice how the mind responds to the world and its provocations. Right? So the mosquito comes along and provokes you, and your mindfulness isn't very strong, and you're not paying very much attention. The automatic volitions come up and kill it, even though you took a precept. Your volitions didn't take the precept, right? There, so it hasn't, hasn't sunk into your psyche, Brady. So that's where you go, okay, I need to spend more time, you know, uh, being, trying to, I need to be more careful. I need to try to be more mindful. And so, then, so that helps you slow down the internal reactions to things. So if you get serious about your practice and you practice steadily, There'll be times, it doesn't become, it doesn't happen right away, but there'll be times when you're, you're like, you get up from meditation and you're walking to the bathroom and a mosquito lands in your neck and you're like, oh yeah, I can't kill that mosquito because I'm, I'm on this precept. And there your mindfulness is strong enough. There your concentration is strong enough. Then you can just kind of get off me. Go away. Right? You don't have to kill it. Right? So now the, the precept is protecting you from transgressing against... Uh, the lives of other creatures. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it makes your mind happier, right? So, the, so when you look back at your behavior, when you do this, you're like, ah, oh, you know? But when you look back at your behavior, when you go, oh no, go away, baby, leave me alone, right? You don't feel any regret, right? So you can look back at your behavior and go, that was good, I'm glad I did it that way. Right? That's a happy mind. That's a mind that's not suffering. Mm -hmm. The more of your life that you can bring in line with the precepts, the more that your conduct becomes sort of naturally that way and automatically that way, uh, the easier it will be for you to sit down and meditate, concentrate the mind, and start to see the subtle actions of the mind more and more deeply. So it's this virtuous cycle. Virtuous conduct and training in line with the precepts makes the mind more capable of meditating. Um, Regular meditation makes it the mind more capable of upholding the precepts under all circumstances. 
So these two feed on each other, right? Um, of the two, the precepts are more important. So uh, if, if all you had time to do was to just sort of take the precepts and make your best effort to try to uphold them, you would be conducting yourselves in line with the training. If you've got the extra time and the effort and the energy and the willingness, add some meditation in there too. The problem with the modern world is that they think they can take the meditation part and just ignore the virtue part. But they're, they're inseparable. Right? Or, or you could say the virtue part is foundational. It's more important than the meditation part. And it's more critical. And it's actually what the meditation part is ultimately intended to make perfect. You could say in a way that what meditation does is it makes you perfectly capable of upholding the precepts all the time with equanimity and even a sense of happy happiness and pleasure. Right? So an enlightened mind doesn't go around killing, stealing, lying, etc. It just happily abides with the rest of the world the way conditions are. So... I hope that helps answer your question. Thank you. Yes, another question. Well, just because we live in a very complex world, I'm having trouble processing that. I might not consciously be doing these things, but my existence could be doing all of these things without my conscious mind. Which things? So, for example, mm -hmm. I might not individually kill a living creature, mm -hmm. but I participate in capitalism, which is killing off species at a gross rate. So unless I'm withdrawing from capitalism and the system that's killing up multiple species, am I not still engaging in taking the life of other creatures? So what you're touching on is a, is a, um, uh, in, a in a way, it's kind of a separate consideration, right? So Buddhism, Buddhism's fairly, the teachings of the Buddha are somewhat narrow, and this is something that we have to accept. The, uh, the teachings of Buddhism is like the teachings, well, I'm going to use by way of analogy, right? In the wide world of all, all the sciences, the teachings of dentistry are kind of narrow. The teachings of dentistry are meant to relieve dental pain. And they don't really have a whole lot to say about particle physics or uh, automotive mechanics. I mean, there might be some little tiny areas of overlap, but fundamentally the focus is all about relieving dental pain and dental health. Right? That's the teachings of dentistry. Buddhism is about relieving mental pain, your mental pain. Not that guy's mental pain, not somebody else's mental pain, yours. Right? If you can relieve yours, if you can understand how your suffering comes to be in your own mind directly, moment by moment, in your own immediate experience, as a result of your volitions, if you can relieve that, you will simultaneously understand how everybody's mental pain comes to be. And you'll have a deep, compassionate sympathy for their suffering as well. And from that stance, you would not intentionally do anything to make their life worse. And so in your larger judgment, if you decide, oh, this action that I do, that I've been doing, that I've been doing habitually, is making is causing suffering for another being. Like say, uh, you have a, a habit of, uh, I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna say that you have this habit, but say it's a person has a habit of um, uh, uh, speaking in a passive aggressive way, right? Like, um, oh, that was really nice of you. you know, when, when someone does, some, some, someone does something else that's not so skillful, right? So, so they speak in a passive aggressive way. Um, and you see, oh, you know, that causes that other person mental pain. 
I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to try not to do that anymore. You see that it's just coming up about because of a habit, because of conditions. You see that it causes problems. And so you decide to abandon it. Right? So now you're making the world a better place. Right? So if someone does something unskillful and you feel like it's appropriate to say something, you might say, you know, there's a better way to do that. When you do that, that hurts me. Right? And that's very direct. And the other person's not being sort of passively aggressed upon. Right? Maybe even that turns out to be unskillful. You, your, your maturity and your growth and understanding over time will change the way that you view your behavior and you view your relationship with others. And this, it's this growth and this change over time which allows you to live more and more peaceably and harmoniously with the world the way it actually is rather than the way we think it should be. Right? And that's the world that we ultimately are obliged to live in. Is this the world like, like right now? Now, if it's too hot, or it's too cold, or it's too crowded, or it's too anything, that you're not completely at ease and completely satisfied, it's like, you know, you don't really have that much control over it. Right? You're like, this, how many people are in the room is how many people are in the room. So, and the, the, the diversity of opinions that they have is the diversity of opinions that you have. You cannot force people to be different than they are, but you can change yourself. And because you can't change yourself, because you're not yet perfectly free of delusion and cruelty and ill will and aversion and fear and dislike and all the other things that cause suffering in the world. <coughs> Until you've completely freed yourself, you're, you've got more work to do. And at least, this is the, again, this is the Buddhist perspective. Right? <coughs> so the Buddha is teaching us how to relieve our own mental pain. And when we do that, it has this kind of knock-on effect, this follow-on effect automatically of making the world a better place by not contributing to other people's mental pain. Right? So we're, we become more and more skillful and more and more uh, willing to meet other people and accept them and harmonize with them just the way they are without needing to change anything about them. And uh, our, we, can, we learn to discriminate between the things that are within our volitional control that we've been ignoring and that we can change and should change and the things that we don't like, but we just have to accept. So this is like a, a, a huge part of the learning that we have to do as we, you know, there's, a, there's an old saying in, in human psychology that there appears to be no upper limit to how, much, how mature a person can become, how, how wise they can become. And we sort of see the same thing in Buddhism. Even people who are reputed to be arahants, you know, completely enlightened beings, um, can become more skillful over time. Even in the Buddha's own dispensation, there's, there's some evidence that when he starts teaching, he kind of doesn't know how to do it. Right? <laughs> like he like says something to people and it kind of puts them off. Right? And then over time, he, but he takes it as feedback. He, he learns from everything that happens. And so over time, he becomes more and more capable of teaching a broader and broader array of people until he gets this reputation of being able to teach gods and humans. Right? He can teach anybody. How to, how to free themselves from suffering. But he keeps saying over and over again, that's what I teach. Suffering and the cause of suffering. And the end of suffering. But anything else is like uh, another domain of human undertaking. Which, not to say that any of those things are not worth doing. So for example, if you feel like there's, uh, the world is beset by political or economic or social injustices, um, then there's nothing wrong with you for trying to, there's nothing wrong with making an attempt to persuade other people to 
undertake action that goes in the direction of what you think would be proper. But it's important to constantly look at yourself and see, are my motivations uh, coming from a place of loving kindness and true understanding, or have I really understood the situation fully yet? And so, and to try to be as gentle and as like kind of willing to uh, willing to accept that you might not know the answer yet. Right? That's a huge part of being able to practice as a Buddhist. Most of the things that are wrong with us are based on presumptions that aren't true. Right? So like, we think we know what's going on. We think we already know the truth, but we don't. If we knew the truth, we wouldn't be unhappy. Because we don't know, because we're unhappy, that's a clear indication that we have not yet arrived at full truth. Someone who really understands how things works doesn't suffer because they understand the truth. So as long as there's still suffering, there's still more work to do. And as long as there's still more work to do, you, it's, it's very important to take on this kind of uh, a sense of humility towards the rest of the world. Right? So uh, that's part of the reason why monks don't get involved in politics at all. Because for every, every monk that you can find who's on this side of the political question, you can find another one who's on that side of a political question. And that's the same for true people in the world, right? So the worldly questions are difficult to resolve because you can always find someone with another opinion. And um, the Buddha said that there, there are these four floods. This is an interesting, another thing that comes out of the suttas. It says that there are these four floods which carry along all the suffering beings in the world. So, so our suffering as beings is as though we're being carried by a flood. And we're kind of like being tumbled around. We, we grab onto various things trying to save ourselves, but the flood just keeps carrying us along. We keep getting flooded from one life to the next. What are the four floods? The flood of sensuality is number one. Um, the flood of becoming is number two. The flood of uh, opinions. Views and opinions is a flood that just carries us from one thing to another. Right? And finally, the flood of ignorance, which is behind the other three. Ignorance is the main flood. It's kind of the flood from which all floods flow. Mm -hmm. But the Buddha specifically picked out views and opinions. So views on how I should be, views on how you should be, views on how the world should be. These are all just views and opinions. And like I said, you can always find someone who's got the opposite view and opinion. And all of the views and opinions are just carrying everybody along in this flood of, of becoming and of, 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 of conflict and of, of not understanding, right? Because we get so caught up in our view that we can't take a step back and go, oh, you know what? That's just a view. It's just an opinion. I wasn't born with this opinion. I acquired it. When I acquired it, that that's came about due to causes and conditions. It's a conditioned thing that came about because of contact. And I'm taking it as my personal possession. And the Buddha teaches that things that you think are your personal possession, they aren't really. You just, you just uh, when, you, when you take ownership of something, it's simply a mental act. It's a volitional act to decide that something belongs to you. Try this sometime when you go shopping. You, know, you walk into the store, nothing in the store belongs to you. You see something you like, you pick it up, and you're going to go buy it. Right? At that moment when you pick it up, it starts to become yours. Right? When you finally hand the money over, the card over, and they give you the receipt, now it's mine. 
So your, your mind takes possession of it, but it's purely a mental act, right? When you look at the actual things that happen, you know, lifting it up and carrying it around, and then a piece of paper changes hands. And where's the, where's the ownership really come from? Ownership is simply a, a, a cognitive act that we do. We take possession of objects. We take possessions of our bodies. We take possession of our country, our nationality, our ethnicity, our, anything you can think of. People identify with it. And if you're identifying with something, it's a volitional act. It's a mental act. And it's part of a view. And views and opinions are one of the floods that carry us along through suffering. So if, you can, if your practice develops, one of the things that will happen is you'll start to see the difference between your view of things. You'll see like, oh, look, there's a view. Oh, look, there's another one. Oh, I have this view too. I share this view with that person. Right? Mm-hmm. And you start to see all your views as just views. And then your views start to become sort of things like, oh, a skin condition that you have. Right? Say you have some psoriasis or something, or some dry, dry elbows. Right? <coughs> right? You go, oh, there's, I, there's these dry elbows. Are they really my dry elbows? Maybe they're just dry elbows. <laughs> like, like, like you could you could make a problem out of it. it says oh look at this my dry elbow and you know or you could just go and there it is you know, it's just there uh, I didn't choose it but it's it's part of what I got to put up with right? so you can see your body that way you can see um, the conditions of your life that way you can see the pain in your knee that way you can see your views and opinions that way and then your your attitude towards your own views and opinions becomes kind of light and kind of flexible. And then your attitudes towards other people's views and opinions can become like that too, very generous and very allowing and very sort of like humane. Like, okay, yeah, maybe their, maybe their opinion is wrong. Maybe it's misinformed. Maybe it's poorly grounded. Maybe it's, uh, it's causally arisen. But so is mine, Ooh. right? Mine is too, right? I haven't fully 100% researched and, and, and gotten to the truth of every single opinion that I've got. Most of my opinions are just inherited from my conditioning. I don't have the time to examine them all down to the, the last nuance of possibility. I have to admit that I could be wrong about most of the things that I believe are true in terms of how things should be, how I should be, how you should be, how the world should be. But the fact is, is if you're going to be a human being in the world, you're going to have opinions, just like you're going to have a body. You can't escape that fact. It's part of the human condition. So, so practice will... Because practice focuses just on what goes on inside here, this mind, this body, you get to see all this stuff and you get to get much more skillful in your relationship to it in your own psyche. And then, then automatically, without you having to do any extra work, you become much more skillful, much more generous, much more capable of harmony with the views and opinions of others. One of the things about views and opinions is they tend to provoke aversion, right? And uh, the Buddha points out that there is no circumstance, none, under which aversion is a good thing, is a helpful thing, is a skillful thing. And that what he teaches is to counter aversion is a, a, a technique called loving kindness, metta. There's a sutta dedicated to metta. I'll recite it for you. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, 
unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great and the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and those to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another, nor wish harm on any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness throughout the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, as long as one is awake, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding two fixed views, the pure-hearted ones, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, are not born again into this world. That's the Metta Sutta. Okay, it's 3.30. <laughs> Time to go. So we'll, we'll close with the closing homage, which is on page 16.